Hello, it's Matt and Becky here from Local Zero. Just a quick note to say before the episode starts that from April 2024, Local Zero will be looking for some new funding to keep it going. We never imagined when we started three years ago that we'd rack up tens of thousands of listens across 130 countries and with a website hosting over 80 episodes. We've also met and worked with some incredible people, including Chris Stark, Hannah Ritchie, Jim Ski, Hugo Tacom, and so many more. And we've been able to showcase so many amazing local climate initiatives from all over the UK and far beyond. But sadly, keeping the pod going costs money. If you or your organisation would like to partner up with the pod as we move into an exciting new chapter, then do reach out to us. You can contact us via our email, localzeropod at gmail.com. That's localzeropod at gmail.com. Alternatively, you can contact us on X, formerly Twitter, at localzeropod or on LinkedIn, direct to Matt Hannon or Rebecca Ford. Finally, to help us in our quest to secure funding, we want to hear positive stories from listeners about how the pod has influenced your life and your work. And we hope to do a very special episode on this too. So please help us continue the fight against climate change and bring local climate action to doorsteps across the world. Thanks for listening. Now back to the pod. Hello and welcome to Local Zero with Matt, Fraser and Becky. This is the place to be for everything you need to know on local climate action. Yes, and throughout February, I'm happy to say we'll be bringing you even more great stuff with episodes every single week instead of our usual fortnightly release. Aren't you all so, so lucky? So throughout this month, we'll be talking to a bunch of people who have been working hard over the past four years to help turn their communities into energy smart places that bring together energy supply, demand, infrastructure and people to connect them in a smart way at a local level, such as your community, town, city or region. And if this sounds like your cup of tea, do remember to subscribe to the pod if you haven't already. Just search for Local Zero wherever you get your podcasts. Check out our website where you can listen directly. That's localzeropod.com. Or get involved with our chatter on Twitter, at localzeropod. I know, Matt, we've got lots of other handles, don't we? I can't think <laughs> Well, that's the only one for now. But yeah, there's a lot more chat on Mastodon as well. So please keep that up and, you know, hashtag localzeropod and, and we'll get back to you. And if you're like me, can't figure out how Twitter works at all, email us, localzeropod at gmail.com so team we are well and truly into 2023 scary as that is how are we all doing well yeah survived so far uh, which is good um we've just said to be honest we're rather hating our 2022 selves because we punted a load of stuff into the long grass thinking uh, new year that'll sort that out um but no uh, yeah all right so far i much prefer this side of christmas if i'm honest uh, days are getting longer uh, bulbs are starting to shoot yeah, it's nice. It's nice, but Matt, I'm I'm totally with you. All of those end of year. Yeah, don't worry. We'll 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 deal with it in the in in 2023, which felt like a year away. You know, at yeah. the end of December, yeah. it's now. Fraser, aren't you sort of like T minus five days to submitting your PhD? I Ooh. am. Yes. Round of applause. 
almost there, full draft, kind of ready. I've, <laughs> I've refused to commit to submitting my PhD on this pod for <laughs> two and a half years. Yes. <laughs> yes, for a very long time indeed. That's great news. Well, we'll we should have a celebratory uh, pod episode after this, I think. Yes. Because uh, I know there's a lot of good stuff in there, which is very on theme as well. Absolutely, absolutely. In fact, some of it speaks to the, the theme of today's episode and the episodes for the, the rest of the month, unpacking... Um, how you can use local energy systems, smart or community energy systems, yeah. to uh, support people across the country to to reap the benefits of the net zero transition. So yeah. certainly lots of relevant, relevant ideas and findings in there. Yeah. And, and as we've kind of jumped into 2023, there's been lots of relevant news stories as well. So uh, I've been noticing this week, there's been a lot more on BBC News uh, with regards to the saving sessions, that the demand flexibility service that we're seeing from the likes of Octopus, but also in the other energy suppliers, which we've talked a bit about on the pod before but there was an interesting piece because and the reason that that came up again is because they've just started their saving sessions again which I think Becky Mm -hmm. you and I have have been involved with but they kind of reflected a bit on on November which is when they were running their last last session and they they had which is interesting to note the theme that we're about to talk today of their 1.4 million customers they had about 400,000 signed up so a good number of those and half of those delivered a, a, a reduction in demand by over 108 megawatt hours. So that's roughly the same as a gas plant running for an hour, which is a significant amount of stuff to take off the grid, right? It really is. I do wonder, I do I do question like how representative Octopus's customers are of yeah. kind of the wider, the wider UK customer base. I feel like they've done a very good job of positioning themselves and targeting kind of a certain demographic of customers so far. But I mean, it's great stuff to see, like so many people getting engaged, participating. I am very interested to see how those numbers play out and whether they keep that high level of engagement over time, because that's it, right? We're not talking about these one-off um events this could be something that's part of our ongoing future so how that equates to you know what we're doing on an individual basis that's that's people cutting their demand by about half over that period so it's often for an hour hour and a half but i completely agree with you becky some people are you know more able and willing to cut than others we've talked a bit about this before one of the things i've noticed is my ability to be able to do it has has been vastly improved by some of the devices i've been able to invest in Mm -hmm. so for instance my air fryer, right? I'm one of those people, awful, terrible people who've, who've bought one, you know, in the last few few months. I've noticed, you know, I've been able to use it because it cuts my cooking time in half. Wow. So I can sit on my bottom during that period and then cook it real quick for the kids without them trying to string me up and, you know, and murder me because they're so hungry. Um, so, so, you know, it, the fact is I've actually, you know, the ability to afford these things has meant... Uh, dictates people's ability to access and, 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 and use them and, and to make savings. I think that's critical, right? Is Becky, you spoke to it as well. It's it's for a certain kind of person who has that certain technology already and that will serve a purpose. That's, that's a good thing. It's a positive thing to get people involved and active like that and it provides its benefits. But I think it does highlight that justice, that just transition issue where if you want everyone to, to access and participate in this and to benefit from this because there is distinct value on offer for people as well as for the energy system, mm. then we have to do all we can to support people who typically don't get to benefit from this kind of thing in these kind of technologies to transition in their homes for all the benefits that that brings and all the value that that brings in the home and in the local area, but also to 
to, to access innovations like this that will be critical going forward. And maybe just before we get on to the, the theme of today's pod, which is very much on, on this kind of subject matter, I just wanted to gauge your reaction from a couple of headlines I saw, which is uh, about something kind of unrelated, about travel. So within about a 24-hour period of, uh, of each other, I saw two stories. The first was that uh, the Eurostar is running at about a third of its capacity at peak times. Uh, this is a post-Brexit thing, or at least it was framed as such, it's around uh, throughput of passports in a very different kind of uh, context where you haven't got the same freedom of travel. And the other story was that EasyJet has recorded record bookings for its flights uh, this January. Uh, so this is, a you know, in part, a post-COVID bounce, right? But situating that within a climate crisis and situating it also within a cost-of-living crisis wanted to get your sense about how bonkers that is. <laughs> I like how that's a very um, impartial question. We've <laughs> just, yeah. yeah, yeah. Sorry. How crazy is this? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Not quite Evan Davis on PM, but there we go. Oh, dear. I mean, um, you, I guess you have to look at where those bookings are coming from. And you highlighted that it was EasyJet. And EasyJet always has branded themselves as the budget airline, so to speak. So it'd be interesting to see yeah. whether, you know, like yep. British Airways and, and some of the other um, airlines yeah. Are, are seeing similar just this cost of living crisis and what we've covered before i'm amazed that so many people have still you know found the cash to be able to book at record levels and we're not we're not putting them on the train well it's because the train's too expensive isn't it it, <laughs> it is. is it is i think it you know people are people are feeling a bit ground out after the last few years i think yeah. it's people want a break and they want it easy and they want it convenient and affordable you kind of as as much as from our perspective we we don't want to be busting the planet taking flights all the time but i think yeah a lot of people are seeing that cheaper and what they see is more convenient option. Well, I'm, I'm more reliable. So I have to go up to London. I'm heading off to London in February during the half term week to see my folks. And my full intention is to travel on the train. And they actually suggested, well, you know, why don't, why don't you book a flight instead? Because who knows if the trains will be running? What about the strikes? Yeah, And this, this um, lack of reliability, I, I think there's a risk that it could be pushing people away from that yeah. form of travel that we're trying to promote. Yes, yeah, and what I've found interesting, in, and I'm having to catch myself on here, reading these two stories, I was reading uh, the one about the Eurostar thinking, ah, damn you, Brexit, you know, what have you done to the, these trains? And then the other one I was reading about the flights, think, thinking more about personal choice and individuals, and they were the, the, the people making the wrong decision. Actually, it's a combination of both, you know, across both of these issues. But if we focus on, on the, the flying point, um you know, and the trains point, we need the architectures in place to make trains affordable and reliable, but also to make plane travel expensive, you know, relatively expensive and to capture those environmental externalities. And we're not we're not there. We're clearly not there. And the numbers speak to that. No, perhaps perhaps another one for an episode later in the year. Yeah. So what's today then, Becky? What, and, and the whole series, I guess, this mini series, which is very exciting. A series, a series within a series. It is very exciting. And I think one of the things that really trying to focus on here is is celebrating some of the successes and hearing some of the stories from this suite of phenomenal projects that have been happening within the Prospering from the Energy Revolution programme that have been running for the last four years to try and create energy smart places. So 14 projects across the UK have received funding from the government. There's also been a lot of private investment into them to 
either design or develop or demonstrate smart local energy systems. So systems that are bringing together transport, heating, power, that are engaging people in new ways, that are trying new forms of demand management, um, that are trying to capture efficiencies, that are growing skills and supply chains, you know, a huge diversity in terms of what these projects are doing, all with the ultimate goal of trying to, I think, just be a little bit smarter about how we're using energy and, and bringing it back down to that local and community perspective. And so we've got four episodes, today's the first, another three after this, to look at some of those learnings from the project. And today we are focusing on policy and regulation, which has been a huge barrier, but could be a huge um, enabler of smart local energy systems. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we've already alluded to some of the issues beforehand, but, you know, some of the points around making this uh, access to these technologies, smart technologies, micro-generation technologies, demand flexibility reduction technologies, is a big one, right? But it's also about where we put the burden of cost on. At the moment, a lot of the policy costs are on electricity versus gas. One of the things I found interesting around the, the, the saving sessions is the people who've already electrified and, and are able to shift and be smart with their energy consumption have made the most money from those saving sessions. So there's loads in this policy space, you know. There is, there is. And I, I, I think important always to, to keep in mind as well, while there's a lot of barriers, we're dealing with a policy and a regulation framework that was built for big centralised energy, it didn't have this in mind. Mm -hmm. That is starting to shift. The attitudes on this are starting to thaw, at least in part driven by prospering from the energy revolution and all those projects and the evidence, because we know now that actually doing things more locally has a huge range of, of opportunities and benefits for big key policy areas, right? So some of the evidence suggests from the likes of PwC that you can do net zero more affordably for UK government for energy networks in terms of the investment required by doing it locally. You can also bring those systems, bring energy down to the local level to more directly include people in the design and tailor those energy systems to local areas, local needs, local opportunities, and um, supporting things like levelling up, if that's your thing, all other criticisms of levelling up aside, but to support regional development and a host of other social and economic opportunities as well. So it's not just about we think local is good because we do this podcast. There's a whole range of evidence that's been built now that suggests doing energy smartly and locally can, can add a whole range of, of new value for a, a net zero transition that doesn't just get us to, to net zero, but does it in a really prosperous and potentially equitable way at the same time. Oh, I like that. Prosperous and equitable. Sign me up. Love it. So let's bring in our guests to talk a bit more. I'm Merlin Hyman. I'm Chief Exec of Regen. And I am Chris Dunham, and I am Managing Director of Carbon Descent. Thank you so much, Merlin. Thank you so much, Chris, for joining us to talk about policy and regulation in the context of energy smart places, smart local energy systems, and, and really trying to think about some of the amazing learnings that, that have been going on over the past four years as the Prospering from the Energy Revolution Programme, or PIFA Programme, as I'm sure we're all going to use the acronyms, have been has been underway. I'm hoping we can maybe start with a little bit of, I guess, history or framing around this, because I think in the context of smart local energy systems, we're hearing a lot about policy and regulation or the need for changes or the need to see something different or the challenges. I'm just wondering if we can step back and, and maybe think about why is that the case, you know? So why is policy and regulation such a big 
focus for smart local energy systems? I guess, you know, what what's wrong or what's what are we doing differently that requires this different approach? And Merlin, I'm wondering, can you can you maybe set the scene for us about this, you know, where we're coming from and where we're going to? Yeah, yeah, thanks, thanks, Becky. And uh, Regen's been working on trying to support kind of local energy and community energy in its various forms for for about a decade. And I guess we came at that from a point of view more that this is a massive transformation. We're talking about sort of the, the decarbonisation of energy. You know, sort of one of our you know critical infrastructures, critical uh, to our lives, how we get about. I mean, you know, work, live, play, energy at heart of all all of it. Uh, and that we didn't really think that transition was possible without engaging people in their communities. You know, it couldn't just be a top-down, we're all going to shift now. We have to involve people because it involves, you know, their landscape, involves the bills, involves what they see around them, it involves how they heat their homes. And so we started to engage and work with organisations and communities and local authorities that wanted to perhaps build projects, start to generate their own power, become a little bit less re- reliant on on them. Na- uh, national systems of power or perhaps benefit out of some of the projects that were going on in their, their community. And swiftly, when you do that, you realise, of course, that in, certainly in electricity, we, and to an extent heat and, and other areas, we have a national electricity system in, in this country. We have one market. Uh, and, and it's a pretty complicated system. It's governed by 10,000 pages of, of industry codes and all sorts of rules and regulations that were really designed for people who were very, very expert in this area. And therefore, it's very difficult for small projects, uh, partly because there's relatively small amounts of money involved to pay lawyers and experts and grid consultants and all the rest of it, uh, and partly just because it, you know, if you're not a great expert in this system, it's really very complicated to to deal with. That that has, you know, that has made this this whole process of people trying to do innovative, interesting things at a local level to generate power. Char- you know, have an EV charger fed off the solar, or you know, feed it into the heat network. Whatever, whatever it might be doing, that that's made it pretty, pretty difficult for people to engage in, and and it has tended to lead to a little bit of a kind of howl of, you know, this system is set up is not friendly to me. It's not set up uh, for me, but not actually. I feel over those ten years, a tremendous amount of actual engagement into the between sort of people very invest- interested in local energy. Uh, and the actual, you know, the, the actual energy system controlled by the electricity system operator and regulated by Ofgem, etc. And I still don't feel we're really having that dialogue properly. Hmm. Well, let's see if we can push the needle on that a bit today. I mean, Chris, you've also been involved, I guess, through Carbon Descent, working in spaces like these, working in these kind of local energy systems. And in the PIFA program, you've been involved with the Green Skies project, which I think is such a fascinating project. And anybody that hasn't heard of Green Skies should definitely go away google it and look at the website because there's some great information there i mean maybe you could just share a little bit about what you've been doing over the past few years and and how this is also you know perhaps creating the need for some changes in the wider system yeah i mean i guess we've been working on a series of uh, feasibility studies looking at smart local energy systems in various areas of England mainly. So one, the kind of main one we've been looking at is in Islington, where we've been looking at taking in in London, taking heat from a a data centre. Originally, it was a a kind of massive scheme with an ambient loop style uh, heat network, joining up all these dots of, of heat loads along the way and connecting them to various 
cooling loads or sources of, of waste heat like TFL, tube ventilation shafts, and then trying to integrate into into the sort of the decarbonization of heat, the decarbonization of mobility as well, so that we have this kind of joined up approach and trying to sort of apply things behind the meter. So you're using EV vehicle to grid uh, sort of tools to to sort of optimize and make the cost of electricity for the heat pumps cheaper and with with PV and so you're optimizing all of that behind the meter and then and then trying to make it work heat decarbonization is is challenging for for various reasons so that's just one of the projects and that's now being or part of the original scheme is being is being built um or islington are, are developing that now and then we've done another we've we've sort of applied the same approach in different areas of of england we've done one uh, quite a bit of analysis in yorkshire and barnsley and the west midlands and sort of similar approaches so looking at potential not necessarily data centers, but sources of like secondary heat sources. And with the idea that if you can find either a cooling load or a sort of waste heat source at a higher temperature, then your overall efficiency of your heat pump will be will be much higher. So you can get up to a sort of combined COP, of, if you like, uh, or TER of your of your heat pump of, say, up to seven. Just for the, the uninitiated, Chris, coefficient of performance there. So that's the uplift. Each unit of electricity you put in, you're getting seven out in that instance, did you say? Exactly, exactly. Or you, you're getting four of heat and three of cooling yeah. from one unit of electricity is kind of what, what we're doing. And so we can make it cheap well we can make it (laughs) you know the the operational cost is cheap obviously then there's a big a big capital cost to to do all this stuff so so associated with that you know i mean the reason government's putting money into this is that we're wanting to it's more than proof of concept and kind of innovation speak we're demonstrating this stuff works Uh, and in part that's learning about putting all these bits of individual kit we know work individually but lumping them together in a real world environment and demonstrating this works but the other part of this, I'm assuming, is asking the question, well, how do we replicate this? So that, you know, the policy, regulatory, market frameworks that are needed to take this from Islington and put it in Hull or Glasgow, wherever. So you know, fr- from your perspective, you know, the experience is really invaluable experience you've got. How replicable are, are these projects at the moment? Are, are you Were you kind of doing it, as Merlin said, a little bit in spite of the rules? Uh, is it a bit more of a sort of positive outlook from the experience that you've you've gained? I would say to some extent in in spite of the rules and to some extent because of them okay <laughs> because and what i mean by that is well i guess we when we started off uh, the first bit of work we would we we did we had the renewable heat incentive available which which really overcame you know the one of the central problems with heat with heat decarbonisation is the the ratio between the electricity and gas price, and the fact that we've got all these levies on electricity, which have you know a pay are paying for the historic decarbonisation of electricity, the, the, and we don't. Yeah, the pol- the policy cost, for want of a better word. Exactly, and and we don't have those on gas, particularly on domestic gas. We don't have practically we have practically zero taxes at all. So that makes switching to heat pumps um, challenging. And so part of the attraction of, of having this combined heating and cooling approach or using waste heat sources is if you get your, your sort of COP to above the ratio, then at least you've got an operational 
sort of saving you know when it's when it's running because or as things stand pre the current energy crisis which is paradoxically has, has helped a little bit because it's made the levies sort of look smaller on a massive wholesale cost now before that you you were investing in you know investing in a heat pump say which would cost you more than a boiler and then you were the actual running cost was higher than a boiler as well so you were investing to lose so that's but that's why this has been so challenging and that's why the approach we've been that's why i say the because because the approach helps us to overcome that problem but the, the but also in spite of because you know an an additional benefit was the renewable heat incentive which kind of partly overcame those the, the this this challenge of the ratio or matter did overcome it and then we lost that that whole thing was just totally was dropped completely whilst we were sort of beginning on the second stage of our of, of our p for project so suddenly it was like okay how do we make it work can we still make it work and then obviously we're, we're trying to overcome the the capital cost you know recover the capital cost and, and make it stack up so is it replicable yes it, it is but it's still challenging in in the environment with you know and also because we much generally we're taking a sort of heat network approach to things you know i think when i start one of the things i've learned is over the past sort of four years is you know density does matter i kind of thought you could do this anywhere like they've done in in denmark you know in in denmark they did it using waste heat from you know thermal generation coal and so on whilst that was available it, it made it much more attractive but now now we're trying to do that i know I, I maybe just wanted to turn this same question over to merlin because you know this this point about uh, Merlin, you made the point very very eloquently before that you know we have a national market which isn't necessarily that friendly to local innovation but in order to reach the scale of generation of demand flexibility at a local level that what that would support our net zero targets and 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 others around just transition you you need to replicate you need to scale up so from your perspective what what has been what has been your experience of scaling up these local solutions elsewhere and and what are the the common barriers and and also ways of uh, unblocking these obstacles it does depend a bit on on the area we're we're talking about i mean chris has been talking about heat which is it is kind of a a local thing i mean you you know, you can't, you know, it has to be a local solution that responds to the types of, of property. Um, and there is less regulation around heat generally and heat networks. In fact, they're starting to bring it in and, and int- introduce it. I think we're still, that. you know, that's the big challenge. It's the biggest, um, you know, Chris is, is tackling the, the the big area that, that everyone is you know, struggling with and the idea of convincing lots of people to shift from gas boilers in their homes and I think we're still seeing relatively early stages of, of trial projects, and there are quite a number of inspiring projects around the country, and we're starting to see heat pump numbers kind of come up a bit, but it is pretty early stages. In other areas, like you mentioned demand and, and flexibility, the problem that you have there does go back more to this centralised energy system. that The sources of value... So the value of providing to the system at a local level, this kind of avoiding grid constraints, but there's not actually that much money. We maybe we all think it is, and grid numbers sound very big, but when you separate it, break it all down, you're never going to build a business case on on a, addressing a local grid constraint for for the network operator. You know, it might be a bit of cream on top of a 
something. So most of the uh, the revenue is actually in the national system run by the electricity system operator, uh, who are trying to balance the system and maintain frequency and you know uh, uh, this kind of stuff. And those systems really are, are not very accessible to local flexibility. There are too many barriers to turn to, to bring that flexibility together and offer it up to the electricity system operator. And that comes down to problems of kind of metering, uh, of contractual arrangements, of challenges of aggregation. And frankly, that the control room in the end is just very used to calling up a big power station when it's got a problem rather than aggregating thousands or millions of different different assets to provide it with, with, a, with a service. Uh, so there's a lot of very basic uh, friction, if you like, in the system for, uh, you know, Ofgem has a concept which it talks about sometimes called full chain flexibility, with the idea that every asset on the system should be able to provide its full value to the system. But we're a long, a long way away from that. Yeah, so it's about getting that scale from, from individual local action. And I think before you came on, you know, we talked a lot about the saving sessions through Octopus and other other suppliers and i think there you know where octopus has been able to bundle 400,000 customers up who've signed up and and offer that to national grid as a, as a means of uh, flexing but it, it's it's when you actually got these, these sort of bespoke local systems where chris like you're talking heat networks and you're looking at you know how densely uh, populated is this area what type of heat demand are we talking about what are the renewable opportunities here whether it be heat or electricity and it's that bespoke nature, and it, that bespoke nature is is a blessing and a curse. So the bespoke nature means that the place based value proposition to local people resonates. You you would hope it, it's sensitive to to their needs in their local area, but at the same time, taking that something that works in Islington and put put it at the other end of the country is to in, in my eyes difficult and not ne- not necessarily without without obstacles. So you know, if there's one kind of lesson learned i hope from the the pfa program and others is about how we can do that and so i don't know whether you kind of have a plea really you know to 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 the powers that be you know what what do we need to to support that yeah i mean i think i think certain elements of policy are kind of coming along at the moment the all the heat network zoning stuff is 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 important and it looks like that will be in place by the end of the by the end of the year, which will enable local authorities to to designate heat zone, heat network zones and say actually this area it makes sense that we should have a heat network, and and therefore certain you know heat heat loads within that area are mandated to to connect, but it's not everyone, and that that will you know it's not they're not going to say existing homeowners have to connect, and that and that could undermine the whole. The economics of, you know, if you only sort of pick certain demands, then you you undermine the economics of the heat network. So that's that's a sort of perhaps a missing piece. Although I I, I recognise that's challenging. You know, you know, do you want to force people? You want you kind of we are doing that in some respects because we we're saying okay, you will have to buy an EV after twenty whatever twenty thirty. But we're kind of saying that. Where maybe gas boilers will be not be available from 2035 or, or whatever, but we're shying away from saying, okay, you know, it's going to be definitely this particular solution. You know, one of the things that I think I've learned is just, you know, the value of flex is, or partly of, of flex, but also of keeping your, you know, there's, there's going to be this huge additional 
peak demand on the grid from decarbonizing, from electrifying everything. And that and how we do it will impact how big that peak is. So if we all went with ground source heat pumps, there would be a lower peak than if we all go with air source heat pumps, for instance. And if we all went with heat networks with big ground source heat pumps and loads of thermal storage, then potentially that peak is is even lower. And then there's insulation, all those things. And but I don't think that value is there yet in the the system, e- even if you can o- overcome what Merlin was saying of of like all these individual assets, even if you're like a big heat pump, like the ones we're putting in and you can play in those markets because we're just using existing old gas CCGT that's out there and has already been sort of paid for, then that can act as our backup. But once we're up to 130 gigawatts or whatever, then we're going to need a, need a load of new assets. To, we're going to need a load of firm power backup, and it's going to have to be zero carbon. Well, Chris, Chris be- isn't, isn't that a, another th- a third stream of value? Carrying on this discussion about what the value of doing this is, and you mentioned future costs. So, so, so Merlin, you know, you, you mentioned, you know, this, this is whether it's uh, giving headroom on the, the network today to, to allow other generation to connect. Uh, two would be sort of balancing the network today, but then there's this anticipated cost of the future. So if if we're making investments today, which are going to stop us building another, you know, gas CCGT power plant or an additional nuke or whatever, that that's a saving. Maybe not saving an immediate one, but is that a third value stream we're not making enough of? Well, I think I think the, you know the, the concept we have a, a market and an electricity market, and there are markets you can access value. In and so, if you are, it, we did a report on on ground source heat pumps and uh, versus and had some numbers versus air source heat pumps and the advantages. Uh, and it does, you know, you, you potentially definitely can reduce the burden on on the network. Trying to identify exactly what that is, making sure that that actually comes through in practice, and and really pinning down where that value is is quite a. Uh, is quite a task and it only you can really only happens when the networks do their business plans they use something called distribution future energy scenarios which regen developed and they run those models through their net their networks and they have a different profile for ground source than air source and so if there are more ground source coming through then that will feed through into their business plan the amount of money they need to to update uh, so there is a process that 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 kind of thing comes through but we don't no, at the moment, people have put out reports saying, you know, it's going to cost this much on the grid if we go. To, uh, we don't really know the answer because they haven't really done the detailed work, and they don't really know about the capacity on the grid at the local level at the moment. So it, it it's a kind of there's value there, but it's not really signalled in the system because we're not really sure how much it is, and we haven't really kind of quite got to that. We can't quantify the yet. value because we're not too much uncertainty about yeah. how much capacity or electricity supply will, will be required. Yeah, and under, just understanding how that system actually works, how the system operator works, how the distribution network and system operator work, how they set their business plans, on what basis do they have to provide evidence to the regulator for investment that they make or don't now make because something's come forward, is something that we that I don't think that those involved in local energy have really got sufficiently into because in the end that's what we have to do we have to accept the energy system as it is and then try and change it rather than just complaining about it merlin you were you were talking about the networks there but obviously there's the actual supply as well you know you've got the the distribution network you've got the transmission network and then you've got the supply although the supply may not come at the end of that anyway but but the point is you've got to have that firm power 
backup. And at the moment, that that value is in the capacity market. So we've got this, you know, capacity system that supposedly guarantees we have enough firm power to meet the the peak demand. But if you look at the value of that, that's that's very small. And the reason is because it's just you've just got a lot of existing assets just bidding into it. But once you start getting that saying, okay, we need we need more than the existing assets. And that can't just be gas because it has to be hydrogen and we've got to have enough salt cavern storage and we've got to have electrolyzers and these assets aren't going to run for very many hours a year. So they're going to look quite expensive. Regen did a report called The Day in the Life of a Net Zero Power System, which uh, we looked in 2035. We took a a difficult two days and, and went through what's actually happening. What is the generation mix? When's it generating? When's it... Uh, and so, and it, and uh, you know that's what we're doing. But lots of others, uh, uh, National Grid put ESO put out their latest capacity adequacy report. If you want some more jargon, have we got enough power to keep the lights on? Kind of, kind of thing. And there are lots of scenarios about exactly how that's going to work. And there are definitely um, costs associated with that shift. And the the more f- kind of we we can we can reduce these intermittency challenge through you know fir- firmer power than than. You know that that's going to be really important. It's understanding the mar- the way the markets work at the moment, how they signal that value, the capacity market, response and reserve services, national grid run, and the and then considering how that might change in the future. And that's where the REMA processes, the re- review of electricity market arrangements that Bayes is running, is going on at the moment. And that's really where we should be in if we want to be influencing this kind of stuff to to make sure that these kind of more local assets can provide that value into the system then we need to make sure the market arrangements are right. And those are fully under review. So, you know, the door is open. We have the opportunity at the moment to try and shift those markets to make sure that they, they value the right things. Yeah. And and an example, Merlin, of what you're saying there is in REMA would be the locational pricing where the price of electricity would depend in in terms of where you consume it. Uh, how close you are to centres of of supply. I'm suspecting we don't want to make this into a podcast on locational marginal pricing. <laughs> no, but I just want to give an example to 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 the listeners of of a different value stream because you know any market is. I, I'm going to shush now because I know Becky's got loads of questions. <laughs> but but that, that that point about value streams, right? That's all about you have to innovate towards the value stream. Yes, you can't innovate towards a value stream that doesn't exist yet. Yeah, that but, I, I, but, exactly. I, I don't think locational marginal pricing delivers that value. Um, I think it's actually about constraint and, uh, and grid and I, I think it would be a, a, a disastrous path to go down but yes it, those are exactly the kind of debates that are happening within REMA and that is the place where we have the opportunity to reshape the market to value the things that you know that we're talking about and that Chris is doing for example. I'm loving this conversation and I feel that I could probably just shut up and you could run the whole podcast with, probably without myself or Matt actually um, but I, I also noticed Fraser you're being uncharacteristically quiet and so I, I want to pull you into this uh, this conversation as well because what what I think we're hearing is or what, what I'm hearing is you know, in amongst these challenges, some of them seem to be about access into those markets and potentially unlocking the opportunities for smart local energy systems or community energy or these smart technologies to to play a role. Um, but I think we're still in a space where we're seeing a lot of this happening within niche communities. It's not something that's really proliferating across the UK, perhaps as fast as it might need to. And I think there are other 
clear challenges or, or opportunities, whether that's through opening up new forms of value stream or kind of perhaps other policy instruments to sort of provide greater signaling or direction towards the business community, the industry and so on. And I know you've just undertaken a piece of work where you've talked to, you know, all of the projects that have been involved. And is that sort of something that, that came out of that work? Are those kind of some themes that, that you were hearing from these from the wider uh, set of projects in PIFA? Yeah, yeah. Well, first of all, Becky, I take offence at the idea that this is uncharacteristically quiet. I keep my opinions to myself and everyone knows that. <laughs> Said no one ever. <laughs> um, so the work that we've been doing on, on the PFER projects at Regen um, was to interview all the different partners in, in the, the project portfolio, or a good load of the partners in the project portfolio, to try and figure out not just those more sort of, again, those niche regulatory and market issues and barriers that they faced, but also thinking about higher level policy questions. So I think uh, signalling is, a, is really, a really good way to phrase it, Becky, signalling and direction. So I, I think we can split down the, the key findings into probably two areas on that front. The, the first one that came out of all the projects that we spoke to um, was a need for greater clarity on the role of local in delivering net zero energy. So we know that local is expected to play a big role in terms of net zero. Local authorities have remit over almost 80% of climate relevant uh, policy sort of levers in some way or another. They have, you know, local authorities in particular have control over masses of, of building stock, stock public housing, etc., um, with, with capacity to make big changes. But what we'd found was the role of local in delivering net zero energy in particular still isn't completely clear. Now, for smart local energy systems, you expect, obviously, local stakeholders will have a big role to play. Local authorities within those stakeholders have an especially important role to play, usually, even if it is more facilitation. But still, in terms of actual policy itself and statutory remit, it's not clear what role local is expected to play within that. So there needs to be greater clarity. Again, this is what the project's told us. There needs to be greater clarity and some dedicated resource and responsibility to ensure that local places can have some autonomy and, and control over the designing of their local energy systems. There's been really good progress towards this in terms of learnings from the, the RISO project in Coventry in particular, but also sev several DNOs are now working more closely as part of their uh, determinations from Rio ED2, working more closely with uh, local authorities on their local area energy plans as well. So some good progress there, but that relationship between central government, local government and local stakeholders will be key. That can also, on the other side of it, start to enable the, the rollout of the, the upskilling that, that needs to happen within this, the resource from industry, etc. as well. So that was point number one. The second point in terms of direction in terms of signalling is we need some kind of greater joined up whole systems strategy for this as well. Again, Ofgem have been really good at pushing this kind of language base as well, but we need a, a more sort of alignment across all the different actors and different sectors involved in smart local energy systems to try and as far as possible streamline that process and and foster better collaboration, better alignment of incentives to deliver projects that can be complex, that can look like they do in Chris's example in Green Skies, 
compared to what they look like in something like Project Leo or up in Orkney, where they, they have completely different configurations as well. So that kind of whole systems approach and that greater definition of the role of local, including local authorities, were two of the key sort of higher level policy insights that, that came out of it's that. might be worth adding, and uh, we heard earlier about the heat network zoning and that, we, I think I mentioned quite a few region reports, haven't I? but we did another one on the local uh, on local leadership in the en- energy system for in clean heat like focusing on heat and it again you, you have this heat and buildings decarbonization strategy from from bays and it kind of mentions local times and says a bit about local authorities and really very uh not really very clear and yet you know you can, how can you persuade 26 million households and all industry and everything to decarbonize without you know just from some top-down edict i mean that doesn't that doesn't make sense you're going to need local leadership um, equally, you can't just do it at a local level. You clearly need national decisions and, and frameworks and, and, and leadership as well. So it's clearly a, a, a partnership. Uh, and heat network zoning is really, I think, a first step by Bayes to say, yeah, OK, we do need to think about this at a, a local level. And what we said was, well, if you're known zoning for heat networks, in a way you're already thinking about, you know, if it's a good place for heat network, presumably that means it wasn't such a good place for just doing heat pumps or or something else. We must already be thinking a bit more holistically. So perhaps we could just extend that con- uh, that concept. Uh, for example, en- energy efficiency. There's money from central government at the moment for energy efficiency schemes, um, but it's a, a bidding process. And we, we did some, we looked at some correlation between sort of areas of greatest need, fuel poverty, how cold they were, and how much money they got from this process. And it was completely, you know, there was, there was no correlation. It's just who's most best set up to bid and then once they've done the bid you know they frantically run around putting all their their time into doing the bid then they uh you know they, they, they employ someone else to try and deliver it and they go off and write the next bid it's a sort of you know sort of crazy centralized system with the money ending up in the, in the wrong places and we put this very clearly to base and they sort of almost accepted but you could take the heat network zoning and you could say well let, why don't we take similar ideas zone those areas of greatest need for energy efficiency and just and allocate the money out of by greatest need rather than some sort of Hunger Games bidding process, which ends up with really s- silly outcomes. And it's so obvious, and it's amazing to me just how difficult central government is to let go. So, so Merlin, on, on that point about central government relinquishing mm-hmm. control, funding, whatever it may be, and we've, we've seen just recently this past week, the levelling up fund. Yeah. I'm not, not going to ask you to comment on that, but just as an example of central government controlling funding in, in specific local areas, okay? On the basis of what you've been saying, what phrases have been said, to what extent can we do smart local energy systems at scale without really thinking seriously about the architecture, the types of actors and institutions that we need at a local level? So over the last 12 or 13 years, I think it's it's fairly safe to say that the pendulum has shifted from a sort of more maybe local and devolved focus initially to a much more centralised one. So in a nutshell, can we do SLES without devolving more power to a local level or not? Does anybody want to jump in on that? The answer is is n- no. I think the, the problem in a way is le- less sort of power exactly. It's, it's kind of clarity because this has to be a ju- national ju- and, and local partnership. It, it's not one or, one or the other. I sometimes give the analogy, maybe not very helpful, of sort of, I don't know, the COVID testing program when you sort of had a, you had a big central, uh, you know, phone uh, system and that kind of, you know that brought scale and the like, but it didn't wasn't very much help for particular communities in particular places that just never reached. And it was when they when you had a local authority 
and a national system that came together that actually started to see r results. And I, the, you know, the, the, talking to local authorities, they want more power, but they also want more clarity and leadership from from central government. So we're starting. So we're starting to see, say, heat network zoning. I think we're going to see local authorities asked to uh, plan out uh, EV charging to make sure people aren't left behind in their area. So you're starting to see some of these responsibilities yeah. come through, but they shouldn't just be. You know, it's no point just saying local authority off you go and and, and do that because in a way that's ministers passing the buck. You know what what then needs to happen, as is happening with heat network zoning, is there's a central methodology that's done once, and all the data collection etc is done once, and then the local the local authority's role is to sort of sense check that and ground uh, and, and adjust it at the local level so it's really uh, effective. So, so there's a to me when they've actually thought about this. Bayes and Co. about how do we do this in a, in partnership in a particular area, heat networks. They've come up with an obvious answer. They've come up with let's come up with a central methodology, central tool set, central bunch of expertise, and then support local authorities to adapt that for their local local areas. And that kind of model, I think, is 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 what we need. It's really about partnership, not about kind of you know one or the other. So, Chris, I'm I'm very interested to hear what you maybe have to say on this, given that you've been engaged on the ground in a given, you know, local authority area. Was there, did you find that architecture, that governance architecture, um, fit for purpose or, or not with regards to delivering these, or, or do we need to see adjustments made down the line? Yeah, I mean, I think the problem is around capacity. I'm totally in favour of of the approach of you know giving devolving more power to local authorities but i can also see that it could slow things up in denmark they just they have all the heat stuff is is municipal the municipal companies you're not allowed to make a profit out of selling heat in denmark so it's just municipal companies running heat networks and they seem to do it really well they're like the, the the cost you know the admin cost of, of of sort of billing and metering and all of this stuff you know when you look at the details is is really good and so but in the uk we've got this kind of historic or maybe in england uh, but have got this historic burden of or, or sense that you know local authorities are, are sort of and not competent or you know let's privatize everything and and leave it to the private sector and, and so and they've maybe lost confidence or lost interest i don't know what what it is but it it's only certain local authorities that seem to have the capacity or the the you know and the willingness and the interest to do this stuff and so i think there is a downside and i don't think you know people will will struggle with you know delivering this without a lot more resources obviously you know yeah it's just on that last point chris i think i think you're spot on and it came out of our work as well and um, bearing in mind local authorities have been struggling under you know however however many years the last sort of 13 years or so with finance budget and resource already and we're now thinking, well, we need you to deliver net zero on top of everything. And also, if you could just become experts in all these different energy vectors and how you piece them together, that would be great as well. I think that's, yeah, I think that's a, a really, really good point. On top of Merlin's is 
also that sort of partnership approach, but it has to come with a recognition that you need the skills in every local authority to do this if this is the way that you're going to do it with a sort of a template, uh, uh, one example that then gets fielded out. You need the, the skills there to, to deliver that and the revenue or the ability to raise the, the revenue to then do you know your local area energy plan, which can be quite an expensive undertaking in itself or whatever version of that you might be doing, and to then... You know, have the, the know-how and expertise to raise the finance on the back of that to do, to deliver a project as well. Almost always, I think you get best progress when you do have that kind of slightly more SPV type arrangement within a, a local area. So I think there is different approaches in in different areas, and I definitely think there's capacity challenges. But I'm slightly more optimistic because I think in every area there are good people there are you know people that know this stuff they may be sometimes in the private sector they may be in universities they may be in community groups they may be in the local authority everywhere we've ever worked there are great people and great knowledge and great expertise so i think if we could get the kind of model right and give the power the responsibility but also the funding and, and enable local areas to find their best path and and then also use national approaches to make this as efficient as possible, you know, to do, to provide all the data people need really quickly and easily. I mean, the amount of money at the moment spent on gathering data at local areas seems completely nuts to me because you can just, you know, we could do all that once and just put it up there for them. For them. Why, you know, why, why are we paying for this again and again? So I think there's, you know, by really focusing on efficiency and by recognising there are different types of local authorities, different local areas, different dynamics, and letting those find their best path, and then have a really clear leadership from from national areas. I'm I'm more optimistic that there's a sort of viable uh, a partnership path there. We're coming to a close, and I'd like to ask each of you maybe to just reflect on your experiences and and looking back on your experiences and and where you see things going. What do you think are the key things that we actually need to be doing now or pushing government to be doing now, uh, wh- where are your priorities in terms of uh, creating change in that system if we really want to unlock the value for smart local energy systems? Okay, I mean, I, I guess I guess this isn't specific to smart local energy systems, but I, I, obviously the government promised to consult on rebalancing gas and electricity um, levies and that was due to come out in 2022 and obviously you can sort of understand why that didn't (laughs) happen with you know the idea of moving any taxes even if you're rebalancing things you know and the net the the net sort of cost of households is the same just the idea of putting something extra on gas is is challenging in the current environment but that does need to happen in order to smooth the path for for whatever anyone's doing in the heat decarbonisation sector, so I think that that's the kind of key thing. And in terms of smart local energy systems specifically, I think just you know more along the lines of what we talked about in terms of taking this the heat network zoning approach to the whole you know to local area energy planning. So you come up with a local plan for a smart local energy system because essentially that's what for me that's what it's all about it's about just looking and more joined up to 
you know, decarbonizing everything, looking at the local area and what the constraints are and what the resources are and just planning that and then delivering it rather than a sort of scattergun approach where you just say, right, everyone do their own thing at the at the building level and then you you'll the the overall cost to society will be higher. So for me that's the kind of the key key things. So difficult to pick uh one area. I think what Fraser said earlier about every significant strategy in this area coming out of government, whether it's sort of a road to zero transport or heat and buildings or or around a power system, I think should have a a clear kind of chapter on the local role and the powers and responsibilities and and that that just that needs to be much clearer rather than slightly fudged at, at the moment on the more specific uh points um i mean one just back to basics in terms of generation since the feed-in tariff has gone we, we essentially have no uh no, no way of someone who's producing a uh, trying to build a small scale generation project having a kind of guaranteed level of income but large projects offshore wind farms etc do get that guarantee through the contracts for different schemes so there's a bit of a bias there if you're against local schemes in that they don't have access to that same revenue certainty which then enables investors to invest knowing that they're going to get their money back and one final little very detailed one that's bugged us for quite a long time um, is that everything in energy you need a license to do basically but there are exemptions to those licenses um, which could be used to enable small-scale schemes to to generate and supply locally for example uh, without having to get an energy supply license electricity supply license which is completely out of the question and that has been uh, th- those li- those exemptions are very poorly drafted very confusing um, and I think if we could sort that out then a whole number of innovative interesting local schemes could be done without loads of legal costs and and the like and we'd, we'd open up a whole lot of innovation it doesn't seem to get talked about very much it's sort of buried in some bit of bay somewhere but it, to me it's a relatively small tweak that that could just just remove a whole load of bureaucracy and allow, allow a load of, a whole load of local innovation fraser did you want any final comment yeah yeah so i think my key ask would be um Vote, vote yes to an independent Scotland. Put me in charge of it, <laughs> and um, I'll, um, I'll show you how. Uh, no, no, I, I think I, I don't have much to add in, on on top of what what's already been said. But I think the the key thing is just remembering that so much of energy is inherently local in terms of the things that we do, how we use it, how we get around, and leveraging the the evidence that we have just now, the examples that have been raised already. Uh, to help enable a lot of the value that we know is on offer for for delivering energy more locally, bringing it closer to to people in places, I think that in itself fundamentally is a, a useful perspective to have as we start to accelerate those those net zero ambitions and uh, work out ways to to do it that are are fair, reflective of of what people need and and more prosperous, arguably, um, if we can get it right. So yeah, remember that it's local and remember that there's there's a lot of value to be gained here if we can do it well. Brilliant. What wonderful words to end on. So uh, so you've been listening to Local Zero. Thank you so much to our guests, Merlin and Chris. It was fabulous to have you on. Um, and a reminder that during February, we will be releasing episodes every single week. So make sure you join us again next week. If you just subscribe to the pod, 
episodes will be downloaded automatically. If you haven't already, find and follow us at Local Zero Pod on Twitter to get involved with the discussions over there. And if you're like me and just can't work your way around that, email us localzeropod at gmail.com to share some longer thoughts. Yes, and if you're enjoying Local Zero, please, please, please do leave us a review. This helps us climb the charts and drive the local energy revolution. But for now, thank you for listening and goodbye. Bye, 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 bye. bye. Produced by Bespoken Media.